1: Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Alice Bagg about her books, Violence Girl, East L.A. Rage to Hollywood Stage, a Chicana punk story published in 2011 on Farrell House. Violence Girl is a memoir of Alice's life growing up in East Los Angeles, moving to Hollywood as a punk rock teen and young adult, and going back home again to get her life together. Born Alicia Armendariz. Alice paints a picture of her early life as being fraught with violence, especially as it was played out by her father toward her mother. She also explains the processes by which she came to see herself as both feminist and Chicana by reading Cosmo magazine and attending public and private schools in East L.A. In her later post-punk life, Alicia earns a bachelor's degree in philosophy from Cal State Los Angeles, becomes a kindergarten teacher, lives in Nicaragua at the height of the U.S. war against the Sandinistas, and eventually comes to terms with her abusive father. For our purposes, of course, it's Alicia as Alice Bagg, the punk rock frontwoman of the Bags, that's most compelling about Violet's Girl. Important in this story is her groupie-like fascination with Elton John, her desire to start an all-girl rock group in the fashion of the Runaways, her first band, Mask Era, and the formation and career of the Bags as key players in LA's early punk rock scene. Alice's tale includes all the important people and places we've grown accustomed to hearing about in regards to this scene. The Crash, The Mass, The Canterbury Apartments, The Elks Lodge Riot of 1979, and The Decline of Western Civilization get their just desserts here. She also provides intimate recitations of some of the darker sides of the scene. Drugs, violence, and broken families were integral in the lives of many punks. All in all, Violence Girl is an important read for anyone interested in the history of punk rock generally, and L.A. punk specifically. Alice Bagg, now known as Alicia Velasquez lives in Sedona, Arizona, which is where I reached her for this interview. Hello, Alice, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music.
0: Hi, Matt. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Oh, Thank you, and thank you for writing your book. Um, usually at this point we, we ask our authors for a, a biography of themselves, but since your book is already autobiograph- auto, autobiographical, I think we'll probably skip that part. Um, but I will ask you, how did you come to write this book?
0: Well, I um, I had gone out to, I had gone out for drinks with a friend of mine, and she was doing research for a play that she was writing, and it was about East L.A. and like the '60s and '70s. So, she was just asking me to tell her stories about my life, and um, not just me. A couple of other women were with me: Teresa Colar-Rubias, who was in a band called The Brat, and mm-hmm. Diane Gamboa, who's an artist, an East L.A. artist who um, also has. A wealth of stories. But um, as we were sitting there in, in a bar in San Diego talking, she, um, my friend Raquel Gutierrez looked over at me and she said, You really should write a book. And um, she planted that seed. I went home that night and I spoke to my husband, and my husband got a little indignant because he said he'd told me to do that before and I hadn't <laughs> listened to him, and it had to come from my girlfriends. <laughs> so uh the next morning he um uh, you know I I told him well I, I you know I'm not really entertaining that thought because I'm not a writer and then he countered with well you've been blogging for years so um you know the thought of like doing a book is just overwhelming but the idea of doing a blog which is you know just all you'd have to write is a little bit a few paragraphs right. every day so um he actually set up the blog for me on the computer so when I woke up the next morning he had the laptop open and he's like look here it is all you have to do is write a little bit every day so um so I guess he kind of pushed me into it and I started doing it up as at the time I was at home I was a stay-at-home mom and my husband was working my daughter was at school all day so I actually had time to write I just had to like not do my housework so you know it became very attractive
1: right uh, and what's it like uh your book is, you know is intimate and personal uh did you have any reservations about that? No,
0: about- I didn't uh, because I really didn't know where I was gonna go with it at first when I first started writing um, I think I thought that maybe my daughters would read it and I wanted them to know me in a different way than the, you know I mean kids relate to their parents just as parents a lot of times they don't know that you're that you've had a life and what what went into creating you and the way you think. So I just wanted my my daughters to know me in a different way. And I also, um, during that time that I was writing, my husband and I had to, uh, we had to separate because of my daughter's school and his work uh, ended up being in different cities. So the way that my husband and I would stay connected was that I would send him my entries every day and then we'd talk about them. and it, was a time when I felt like really connected with him because I was sharing my personal experiences with him. So I never, I never felt like I had to hold anything back.
1: It is one thing to tell your daughters and your husband, but you know, the world is learning about you now. Alice.
0: (laughs) I know I I hadn't, it never (laughs) occurred to me that now everybody knows all my business, (laughs) Right. but you know, truthfully, I don't mind because I really, I hope that if, um, that, I hope that it can help somebody and you know, maybe someone is feeling like they're alone or they they they're the only person that has gone through one of the experiences that I've gone through. I I'm surprised sometimes because people connect with different parts of the book. Some people connect with the part where, you know, I'm going to Mexico a lot and there's this Mexican feeling to it. And others connect with the punk rock part of it and others connect with the like having a father that's abusive and extremely an extremely powerful personality that they have to um, sort of just deal with, figure out how to deal with, and how to re- regain your strength or find your strength in reaction to that.
1: Well, so since this is new books and popular music, we'll focus on on the musical parts and, of course, the 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 early L.A. punk rock scene. Um, but let let's get into the book and let's let's start. You begin, you know, with. With you growing up, so c- tell us some of your earliest memories of music. When does music enter your life? and how
0: Music enters my life through my father. My father is um he plays ranchera music all the time uh, when he's home, and the the rancheras are like really sort of emotional and powerful. And most of my influences in Lonchera music are male, actually. It's a lot of, like, guy energy. Um, But then my sister uh, is playing the Beatles. She's playing a lot of soul music. My mother is listening to The Twist. And Enrique Guzman, who's a Spanish pop, you know, Spanish language pop. Mm -hmm. And then we're also going to the movies. So uh, a lot of the Mexican movies have music in them they have it's not like a musical but usually there's like a few songs in them or from my my memory it seems like there's just a lot more music in the um in old mexican movies than there are in the um in their american counterparts so i don't know uh Mm -hmm. that that also influenced me the actors that were all that also happened to be singers like in pedro infante and um uh, Jorge Negrete were two that come to mind. Mm -hmm.
1: So your earliest, what I get from your book, your earliest life until you go to school is, is all you're, you're only speaking Spanish and correct. And, and and almost all of your influences are, are, are Spanish language, correct?
0: Yes. Except for my sister who, my older sister who listens to, um, American music. Mm -hmm. So I hear it. I hear some English in music, but, Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not allowed to speak it at, at home um, during my early childhood because my father really is adamant that um, he doesn't want me to forget it. Mm-hmm. So the rule at home is, you know, you speak English at, at school and you only speak Spanish at home.
1: Mm-hmm. So you describe a moment then uh, you move and you move to Bonnie Beach Place mm-hmm. and uh, your parents buy a stereo console. I, I'm imagining from... I, I'm in my mid forties so I have some of the same cultural background as you it's one of these I'm imagining one of these big you know shelf <laughs> kind of things that you lift up and there's a turntable in there
0: exactly and it's mm-hmm. so fancy it's got this fancy woodwork and yes you lift the top and you can stack records and you know it's just it's fancy and i don't mm-hmm. I don't know why you need something that big but it was like the size of a you know a I don't know. Um, so it's a
1: it, it's a piece of furniture. It's rather a piece than of furniture. A, yes. But this had an influence on you.
0: Well, this was it. It it started off life in our family room, um, and where we all shared it, and then eventually it ended up in my bedroom.
1: <laughs> wow.
0: <laughs> so I just kind of took it over.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and and what kind of uh, records? I'm imagining it's just a record player, maybe what an eight track or something, but probably just uh, vinyl records, right?
0: Yeah, I I. I just played vinyl on it. Um, mm-hmm. I started it- off, you know, buying singles. And then after a while, that, I wasn't satisfied with that. And then and I used to buy them new. And then I discovered that you could buy vinyl at, in thrift stores for pennies. So I started my collection really early on. I was an avid thrift store shopper. So that mm-hmm. helped. Um, and then I started, it, it's kind of funny the way, you know, you, you start something because you listen to something on the radio and then it becomes a research project. You know, like Mm -hmm. I remember because my sister was listening to soul music, one of the the things she was listening to was The Supremes. So I remember seeing um, Lady Sings the Blues and then thinking, wow, what was that song she was listening to uh, in this particular scene? And it turns out that it was Bessie Smith. So I had to go back and do research and find Bessie Smith. I had to go back and see what, you know, what what did Ho- billy holiday really sound like and um so it all becomes you know like i said a history lesson where you it's, it's almost like you're an archaeologist discovering this stuff you feel like you know you feel i don't know it's you feel that excitement mm-hmm. look what i found have you heard this you know you get to school and everybody's just all the other like you know, middle school kids are just as ignorant as you. So it's like, oh, look, at <laughs> it's such it's so it's so exciting to be able to turn somebody on to new music. And I remember. uh I remember a friend of mine um playing Hunky Dory for me, which is uh an early Bowie um, album. And I it was that was it. That was a turning point for me. I st- suddenly started listening to more of the. Glam artists, you know, glitter, and glam became.
1: And that, Sorry, I'm going all.
0: I'm going all over the place,
1: probably. No, please, please go all over the place. But that was one of my questions, and I'm not sure it's. Uh, you know, I've I've read you know quite a bit about the punk rock and the LA early punk rock scene, and it's never been researched quite enough. But everybody, you know, from from X to Darby Crash, everybody mentions David Bowie. Talk talk more about David Bowie's influence on that other early scene,
0: on, on, on the on the Bowie, kids
1: you were hanging out with.
0: Well, because the kids I was hanging out with were all like pushing against convention. We were all misfits at our own, you know, in our own schools or in our own neighborhoods. So we were already, you know, kind of other. We were outside the mainstream. And those those artists like David Bowie. David Bowie is a common denominator, but I was really more into Elton John. Mm-hmm. Who is also doing a similar thing um elton john david Bowie t-rex uh, the New york dolls I mean look at you know j- just looking at the album cover of the New york dolls and you're like well these guys are <laughs> not like anybody else that's that's out there so I think we connected to them because they were pushing against conventions you know mm-hmm. they were expanding um uh, they're, they're expanding our ideas you know david Bowie brought in he was the first person I had ever heard speak about bisexuality, and um, that was really scary to like kids in the hood, you know, in East LA. Like, you know they they don't like they don't like uh, ambiguous um, ambiguous sex roles. You know, you want they want mm-hmm. really clearly defined sex roles, and um, and David Bowie was very unpopular in East LA. So it was just people like me who liked him who were immediately uh, seen as weirdos because of it. So I think part of it, you know, part of the reason, I don't know if it's a cause or effect that we were into David Bowie. We might have been into David Bowie because we are already weirdos, or we might have been classified as weirdos because mm-hmm. we listened to Bowie and the other, like, uh Glam or glitter, I, and I say glam because you know we use those words interchangeably at the time. But mm-hmm. uh, it was those artists that were kind of gender bending, but also playing music in a different way and, and just challenging uh, the norm in um, in ways that were exciting to us.
1: I think we've forgotten forty years later, almost forty years, how bizarre Bowie was at the time. I mean, he, he was literally, you know, from another planet almost.
0: Exactly. I when uh, I remember going to see the man who fell to earth, which is his his feature film that he stars in about being an alien, and and then the whole like Ziggy Stardust album. Um, I think he cultivated that, and I think for a while, when you're a little kid, you start thinking. I wasn't a little kid. I was, a, you know, in middle school, I started thinking, could it be? Could he possibly be an alien living amongst us? You know. <laughs> So, I don't know, i think uh yes he he definitely was weird enough to to make me wonder if he was from another planet, mm-hmm. but and, I was sort of i i was i found that exciting where other people might have found that <laughs> frightening
1: well he he sold enough records where there were quite a few people uh, yeah that were in. tell us more about your uh, as you just mentioned your your fascination was more with Elton John. what was it about Elton at the time? And again, it's almost 40 years later, we we forget about Elton in the 70s.
0: Well, first, I kind of discovered Elton and Elton John around the same. I mean, Elton and David Bowie around the same time. But then um, I kind of thought that David Bowie was gay. So I figured Elton. But but
1: not Elton. You didn't figure that one out. No,
0: no, no. I didn't (laughs) think Elton was gay. I thought Elton. I thought I would I could actually marry Elton. (laughs) So (laughs) I chose him for the. To be the subject of my obsession, and I re- was really obsessed with Elton. I was one of those, like, you know, I looked up where he was going to be and tried to figure out which hotel he was staying so I could wait outside and catch a glimpse of him because <laughs> I, I really thought that maybe someday I could marry him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've actually, at the same time as reading your book, I've been reading uh, Pamela De Bars. I'm with uh-huh. the band, and, and you're like ten years apart, and. I'm happy that you went into a band but there's must be, there's this kind of I guess groupy culture, right? Yeah, and and that, that's kind of what you were doing with Elton John.
0: Yeah, I think when I was in um in middle school and maybe even my early high school years, I was really influenced by groupy culture because I saw it as like a way to be close to the musicians that you that you admired so much and I didn't realize even though I always even since from, from the time I was a really little kid, I wanted to be a singer. I, um, I didn't have any role models or I didn't, I, I you see, there were, there might've been role models out there, but I wasn't connecting to them. So um, my real mo- role models became like Sable Star, you know, like Groupies or Cherry Vanilla, who were, um, who were, close to to the artists that i admired so what happened at one point is i was trying to uh to be a groupie and this realization came upon me you know i just i just i came to the understanding that i didn't have to do that that i didn't have to just be a music supporter that i didn't have to live vicariously through somebody else that i had whatever they had i could do too i had it too so um that's when I really started trying to work on my own music, but um, but yeah, for a while I really I really idolized groupies. I even I, my friend um, who was in a band with me, was corresponding with Cherry Vanilla, and she'd read her letters to me, and uh, one of them was a, a poem where she talks about like how messed up these these artists that she's been supporting are and how they don't appreciate her, and they don't see how talented she is and that was also uh, a revelation for me it made me it made me want to shape up and like do my own thing
1: mm-hmm. so Actually,
0: it, well, let me just say one more thing and even please. even now um when I have you know now that I have been in several bands and and i if I go someplace and I talk to people i try to relate to them as human beings, even if they see themselves as like fans or groupies, I try to discourage that, that kind of relationship. You know, I really want them. I want my fans to see themselves as like, as people who could do what I'm doing, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and find inspiration rather than, than, than making me a, a, To be something that I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not no different from them. Um, They could do what I'm doing; they just need to find it in themselves. So, So
1: what you're describing is, of course, was ended up being labeled as you know DIY and do it yourself. Did you come to this realization before you started running into other you know punk rockers?
0: I think, no, not really. I think when I started, um, when I got in the band you know, let me let me back up. when I saw um, the Orpheum show, the Orpheum show was the first really local la punk show that I saw. and Is it that was the
1: one with the oh go ahead.
0: the germs, the zeroes and the weirdos. And I took something away from each band like from the germs, I I took away that you did not have to have great skill to get on stage. Uh, from the zeros, I thought, Wow, here the, you know, um, here are these Mexican guys that are like, you know, they're just playing. They're not like they don't. You don't have to wear it on your sleeve. You don't have to wear your ethnicity, or or let it stop
1: you. Even Chula though- Vista is my hometown, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then um, from the weirdos, it was just like, you know, first of all, everything they created everything from like their music to their clothing to their their. On stage personality, right. I just thought they were so radically different from anything I'd seen that it really made me, that particular show made me feel like there were no obstacles for me. Like, you know, there was no reason to sit around and take classes, singing lessons or guitar lessons or, or wait until the perfect um, ensemble manifested before I could play that point it it just that show just kind of lit a fire under under me and patricia too who who um she was my she's my best friend and we were trying to form a band together so at that point we just said okay we're just gonna like seriously just get whoever we can get that's good enough and we're gonna play and uh and i think that's what wait did i answer your question i don't even
1: i'm I'm, sure you are
0: um (laughs) Yeah, I think okay. in that sense it just made us feel like we didn't have to wait for anything, and and I guess that's in a way that's a DIY ethic. That's part of the nice. DIY ethic. It's not waiting until until you achieve perfection, and that's still something that I feel I take with me today. You know, and I try to I try to uh, preach the, the the I don't know preach
1: is it, is it a gospel. Um, So that show.
0: Perfection of like, just go ahead. I I babble. uh, That's why they wrote that song about me, about babbling.
1: (laughs) So that show was in in 1977. A few things, at least in the chronology of your book, happened before then. Um, For instance, you had gone uh, to a Patti Smith show at the Roxy, correct? Yeah. Which was pretty influential on you.
0: Yeah. Uh, Patti Smith was just. Patty Smith and also Susie Quattro were huge, you know, like female influences. They had so much like uh, energy and this talent. I mean, they they really like delivered a song in a really powerful way. That was different from the women that I'd had grown up with. You know, the the women that I had grown up listening to were more like soul singers, and Patty Smith and Susie Quattro were really rockers that. We're doing what the the guy rockers were doing, and putting a feminine twist on it. Um, and Patty Smith's was important to me because her feminine twist was actually androgyny, you know, which I loved. I loved the concept of just like getting up there in um, in what looked like you know just a ragged t shirt and jeans, and her hair looked um like it hadn't been styled or you know she just she I don't think she was wearing any makeup I couldn't tell if she was she looked like she was just this androgynous creature that was full of of sexual energy and I could pick up her femininity but it wasn't contrived it wasn't manufactured it wasn't high heels it wasn't tight dresses and makeup which is what you know we now think of as feminine femininity it was an animal femininity, you know, that didn't have to be, mm-hmm. um, it didn't have to be groomed or packaged in a certain way, and I loved it. I just like, uh, I was blown away with, from it. I was, um, it was inspirational to me, and I think uh, when I was on stage, I think there was a part of me that became lost, that became. Um, You know, even though I did, you know, sometimes wear high heels on stage, there were also times when I didn't. There were times when I would kick them off. There were times when I felt like I didn't need that to be feminine. I didn't need that to be sexual. And yes, a lot of the energy that was on stage um, was sexual. In rock and roll it is, right? In in Mm -hmm. music and in punk music, there's still that sexual energy.
1: And and you, uh, sometime before that uh, Orpheum show, that's... uh... You had also had your own band started, right? Femme Fatale, then called the yeah. Mask Era.
0: Yeah, I think at that time, though, we were striving towards something more, um, more, more glammy. You know, we were wearing silky tops and trying to play more complicated things, and they were really beyond our our reach. You know, beyond our technical reach. So. I think that had slowed us down, trying to write these epic songs oh. with all oh. these chord changes and modulations and bridges that were they were beyond our technical ability so um the pro- the the projects never got off the ground. we'd start playing and then we'd learn you know two or three songs and practice them over and over again, and never quite master them and um and you know. Eventually it just people came in and out of the band. It wasn't until we decided to just toss all that stuff out, put bags over our heads and play whatever we were, you know, <laughs> play, play what we could play and feel comfortable with it that we really found that we could connect to an
1: audience. Mm-hmm. Um also in the, in this era, uh, you, you come across a couple of people who are now, you know, uh, infamous in that, that, that scene and that Hollywood scene, Kim Fowley and Rodney Bingenheimer. Can you tell us about your brief relationships with them? Well,
0: I met, I met Rodney first. I met him at, uh, the Starwood and he was at the time, uh, my friends and I were trying to get our, our all girl band together. And, uh, my friend said, Oh, go over and talk to Rodney. He's standing over there eating French fries, you know, and he likes young girls. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, I went over and talked to him. And to my surprise, he was really, really nice. I thought he was going to be, you know, intimidating, but he was very sweet, offered me some French fries, wanted to hear about my band. And after a brief conversation, offered to help me. I gave him my number and he said, if he heard of anybody or any, you know, any way that he could help me, he would. And, uh, you know, I, I forgot about it until my phone rang one morning and my mother came over. I was living at my you know, my parents' house still. And my mother knocked on my bedroom door and she came, she covers the phone and she's like, it's a man. It's a strange Sounding man, uh, and it was Kim Fowley. You know, I didn't recognize his voice at first until he started like going off, like this is Kim Fowley, and I've done this and that. You know, <laughs> you know that that way, that charming way that he has.
1: Little did she know how strange he was.
0: Yeah, no, really. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we had been listening to The Runaways, so um, the fact that Kim Fowley had called was kind of a big deal. We thought maybe, maybe that was. Uh, a venue that was, that was a way for us to, to get our foot in the door. Um, so I started talking to him. He had me sing on the phone and all I could think of to sing was moon age daydream. So I started, started singing, I'm an alligator, which of course doesn't really (laughs) show off my range, (laughs) but, um, he asked me to, um, to go to an audition. He said they were doing a big audition for the next, his next project was, was, which was going to be Venus and the razor blades. And he asked me to invite my bandmates and for all of us to come down and audition. And the audition was a pretty much a fiasco, but what did happen was we, we weren't selected for the band, but we did meet other musicians at that particular audition and including, um, a girl who who wanted to be our drummer, and a guy who was her brother who wanted to be our manager, and we started practicing with, or we went to their house. Oh God, it's it's convoluted. So I think you better. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna just throw it back to like read it in the book because it's a long story how we end up with a manager <laughs> and a drummer that uh, doesn't really want to be in our band. <laughs>
1: uh- and that's, that, that's your, and that's
0: your... the, well, that's the end of my direct, um, relationship with, with Kim Fowley. But what happens is that later on, I, my boyfriend, um, uh, Jeffrey tries out for Venus and the Razor Blades. And at that, that point he decides that it's not going to be an all girl band after all, they're going to, they're going to have guys in it. And Jeffrey, uh, becomes their drummer and changes his name to Nikki beat.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so I still have to constantly hear about Kim Fowley through Nikki, mm-hmm. um, who Christens him, um, uh, uh, what is, what is he calling <laughs> King Midas with a, like King Midas in reverse. And I don't know right. if I can say this on, on your show, because every, everything he touches turns to, um, the not not gold I won't say what it is
1: because <laughs> <laughs> at what point uh do you start identifying as a punk
0: I think after the Orp- Orpheum show I think that for me that was the first the first real punk show even though I when I was you know, before before the Orpheum, Orpheum I'm sorry before the orphium show I had already been listening to the Mormons. so that to me was punk so there were times and and even patty smith was making the transition into punk those bands were kind of ushering in you know the 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 east coast um version of punk which influenced us you know and got our us to create our own our own um, definition of what punk was. You know, punk Hollywood style is very different from punk East coast, I think. And so uh,
1: you were aware of punk in New York and London, right?
0: Not really London. I think New York, I think New York precedes London. And in Mm -hmm. my, you know, in my experience, I was, I was reading punk magazine in high school. So, uh, and I was listening to the Ramones, uh, Patty Smith, you, you know, you've heard, you heard of like the Bowery bands. Mm-hmm. So, and, it, and they had a, diff, to me, they had a different flavor from what happened in LA. So we, we were influenced by that, but I think we took it and sort of um, gave it a Hollywood twist. You know, you don't see bands that look like the weirdos on the East coast or in, or in, uh, in England. Mm-hmm. or the screamers you know if you don't see that kind of stuff
1: um. so i get you know la is obviously this this huge place and this is what night around the the orpheum show happens in 1977 mm-hmm. so i i'm getting this you know this image that you know there there are there are these individual others like you just called yourself a few a little bit ago um, mm-hmm. that seen themselves as kind of weird and but they must be spread out you know far and wide across the whole L.A. area. Um,
0: yeah, it was kind of like, you know, like every neighborhood threw out their misfit toys into a bag and somebody came by and collected them all and threw them to Hollywood. And then uh-huh. we all just like met each other and, like and every, started creating uh-huh. together. Yeah, that's why it was so diverse. You know, that's one of, the, one of the things that I wanted to show in my book was that I think people look at punk and they think, you know, white male you know that's what's in that's what's in the mosh pit and mm-hmm. it's it wasn't like that at first at least in LA it wasn't like that it was really people from all all neighborhoods that were gravitating towards the music that was that was pushing against convention that was other that was challenging and exciting and embracing and embraced uh different things you know and what I mean by different things, it embraced the differences that in our neighborhoods were seen as as um, detrimental, or not detrimental, but they were, you know. If you were, every neighborhood has their set of values and their set of um, tr- customs or whatever that they think are are cool and acceptable, and those that aren't. And we were the ones that that were attracted to the things that weren't popular or acceptable in our neighborhoods. So we brought that into Hollywood, and the people that were creating that scene embraced those things. The very things that made us other. I don't know <laughs> if uh-huh. that makes any sense at all. What? But the fact what... that maybe someone was gay, or that someone, you know, and was not accepted in their neighborhood and brought it to Hollywood where it was accepted or that somebody, um, I don't know, was, was, uh, artistic and liked to dress funny, you know, maybe in their neighborhood, somebody, they were seen as too weird and they brought it to Hollywood and it was embraced there. So that's, that's what, that was my experience is that the things that, Made us unpopular in our own neighborhoods are exactly what made us popular in
1: Hollywood. And another thing that strikes me when you know I, I do my research on this scene is that it really what didn't exist for very long. It seems like you know maybe a year. You're stretching it if you say this whole thing lasted two years, right? Before it becomes hardcore and 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 mainstream.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I think I would say a couple. My my involvement in it, I would say. Two, and then in the third year, it started going, it started changing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: though that, I, that's what I would think. Um, but, you know, it depends on, on where you're looking from, because I was living in the center of the actual Hollywood scene, so a lot of us just didn't go to those shows. Those shows may have been happening, those hardcore shows that were starting to to change. The um, mm-hmm. what people thought of as punk, they might have been happening, but that doesn't mean that the people that were involved in the early Hollywood scene were going to those. We had our own. It's almost like a um, like a s- subculture within a subculture, you know. Like.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, y- you were all living at the. I mean, how long were you all living at the Canterbury? It wasn't that no, long. That was, was
0: that was only for about a year.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So that part was only, um, but we were still, even when we weren't living at the Canterbury, we were still very deeply connected to each other. We could still go to each other's shows, and we still had a community. And people that moved from the Canterbury, as people started moving out, they moved nearby to other apartment buildings and other, um, um, I mean, everybody was still pretty close. So... We still had a community. Mm-hmm.
1: So let's jump to the bags. How did how do the bags form?
0: Um, well, you know, we were trying to form that all-girl band that I mentioned earlier. Right. And uh, after we went to the Orpheum show, where we saw the weirdos and the zeros and the germs, we decided... Uh, Patricia, actually, uh, had gone out... And uh, with some friends of ours, and they had put bags over their heads. Just, they were bored, you know. They put bags over their heads, got in the car, and drove around Whittier, sticking their heads out at people, you know, and and yelling at people, sticking their (laughs) bag-covered heads. And apparently it was so much fun, and they got such a crazy reaction, like some people were really scared, and other people uh, would burst out laughing. And she was so excited about this experience she'd had that she said, I think we should wear bags over our heads. So I thought it was a great idea. Don't ask me why. Yeah, you want to be in a band and wear a bag over your head? Yes. (laughs) So (laughs) so we decided to do that. And um, and it was actually really, really fun because, uh, you know, first of all, you get to be really creative when you're decorating your bag. And then the other part of it is that you are kind of anonymous. You know, you get to be behind this bag and create a persona. You know, it's like wearing a mask. It's like being, it's almost like theater, right? So um, I told, uh, at the time I was i was pretty close to um, Bobby Penn, uh, mm-hmm. who would later become Darby Crash. And I told him about the band and he said, that's great. They can all wear bags over their heads, but not you. And I'm Why not me? No, you're not going to, you know, and he just like, he just had the idea that I was not supposed to do that because I was the lead singer. So when we played our first show, within minutes of my being on stage, Darby, I'm sorry, Bobby at the time, um, just started pawing at my bag until he succeeded in ripping it off. (laughs) So that, that happened a few times, like two or three times, I think, before I finally just gave up the bag.
1: It was always Bobby Pinn, Darby Crash. Yes,
0: yes. <laughs> he was. We we were we were good friends in the um, early in our careers, and then we just you know had. Uh, you'll read it in the book why we drifted apart, <laughs> but um, but we would go to each other's shows. So I was always at the front of the stage for his shows, like pulling on his clothes and terrorizing him. So he'd give me back the same thing.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> How did you meet Bobby?
0: I met him outside the Orpheum Theater um, when they were when the Germs were going to do their first show. Okay. And uh, they were like, there. It was uh, Donoria and um, Lorna Doom and uh, Pat Smear, who at the time was calling himself Guitar, and <laughs> uh, and Bobby Penn. And they had like a bag full of groceries and they were just like playing with the food, right? Like, so we went over and started talking. Patricia and I went over and started talking to them. And uh, they were so, Bobby was so friendly. He just like started entertaining us with jokes. So, yeah, so I liked him right away. And then Mm -hmm. he went on stage and did that crazy show. And I was just, I mean, it it was great. It was, you know, something you'll never forget like watching that show i remember everybody's performance and i remember like how i felt i remember like i i like just you know my jaw dropped when i heard the the germs play and when i saw what darby was doing it was just funny shocking exciting you know people like and they they had the plug pulled on them and you know half of the audience was like clapping and screaming and cheering them on and the other half was like booing and (laughs) <laughs> wanting to throw things at them so it was he was inspiring you know mm-hmm. Darby was inspiring to me.
1: when you look back on those days you know how often do you think wow you know we how young we were and you know, when I look back at my life over 30 years ago I was you know as a kid
0: yeah yeah and I when mean, when I go read places and I meet these young kids that are reading the book now it's really exciting to me because I know how creative and how much how much energy they have and that they have more time and they they don't have all the uh, trappings that we acquire as years go by you know
1: Uh, it wasn't something that adults could have done I mean full full full-on adults
0: oh I don't know I don't know you know because I feel like once I turned 50 I decided that I was going to I was going to, going to try something new and, and here here we go. I'm an author now. So, um, and I find myself doing things that I didn't think I would, I would do, you know, like uh, a few years ago, maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. I don't know if that qualifies as a few, but um, I was in a band and we were trying to book out of town gigs and I'm like, oh, I don't want to sleep on floors anymore. I'm too old to do that. You know, now that I'm doing this book, I'm thinking, I don't care if I have to sleep on a floor. I want to tour this book. I want to, you know, I want to go out and read in the middle of nowhere. So, so I'm willing to slip, sleep on someone's floor. And that to me is like, I, I, I really would like to uh, not just motivate young people, but I really want to motivate people who are my age, who are thinking, okay, it's time to like, you know, do something more low key. I don't think we have to. I don't think we necessarily, you know, want to do the same thing that, like, the young kids are doing. But I do think that we have to keep that edge in our life. And we always have to keep, like, trying new things and that we have to go after them as, the, as though we were 17 years old. With all that energy and all that commitment that that teenagers have. Mm-hmm. You know, just because we're older doesn't mean we, we get away with, like, you know, being wishy-washy. Mm. I don't know. What do you think? You're you're I, you're not quite my age, but I know that you have a family.
1: I, I think we can we can take the whole DIY thing and and continue through life and we don't, you know, you don't have to wait for the right publisher of your book, for instance. There's all sorts of avenues out there. That, right. And there's as you said there are blogs and and such things. If if, you know, we can, we can get our product out there without waiting for the establishment to to christen our our work. Yeah. Um, tell us about, uh, your, your sex pistol story and your Sid Vicious story, please.
0: The sex pistol story. Uh, you mean, uh, you mean when when, you when, got, uh, you... when Darby, I mean, when Darby, see Darby and <laughs> Darby and Sid Vicious kind of, uh, they're, they're similar. They, their behavior at my shows is similar. Um, when I was in, my band had gone up to see, um, to see the sex pistols at Winterland in San Francisco, and uh, and we had, Craig Lee, who booked most of our shows, had booked a show for us at the Mabuhay, which um, was a venue, a, a Filipino restaurant on Broadway, and um, the bags started doing uh, our show when Helen Keller walked in with um, with Sid Vicious they were, they were seeing each other for a while and um, they were at the front of the stage and I looked up and I'm like, oh, wow, Sid Vicious is here, (laughs) which is really exciting because I was a big fan. I thought he was the coolest pistol, by the way. And, um, (laughs) and he was bobbing his head and suddenly, you know, he came up on stage and then he started rolling around on the ground with like his hands and feet up in the air, like, like a kitty playing with an imaginary ball of yarn is how i describe it right cuz he's sort of just moving his hands around and rolling literally rolling um and then of course i'm still on stage so i'm trying to sing and not just look at him <laughs> but he gets up he comes over and puts his arm around my my neck and uh is trying to sing with me <laughs> which is funny because i'm you know he's never heard my band before and he doesn't know the words to any songs so I keep the mic from him um and uh and we just he, I just walk around the stage with with uh Sid Vicious <laughs> hanging on to me and uh it's really cool you know I mean you know, I I'm at that point I was a fan so and having so, you're the person that you look up to up on stage with you it was really thrilling um and eventually he's really intoxicated and goes down onto the ground again and starts rolling around again and then um i continue singing but i can see that you know you know from the corner of my eye that uh helen is helping him up and they she takes him up to the dressing room where he is um where he pretty much is um incoherent and about ready to pass out and he passes out and um uh, and um, somebody comes pick him up later on but it's my point in telling that story is that that I had I really wanted to hang on to my own my own created version of what Sid was you know I I idolized him so I really and I thought he was so cool that I chose not to see the part of him that was self-destructive and um, and I still think of him that way. You know, I still think of him as like, just really, really cool. And I feel, and it makes me feel bad that, that he died the way he did. And mm-hmm. I don't know. That's it. That's my story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think we'd be remiss if we don't uh, discuss the decline of Western civilization a little bit. The movie, um, that, that's the most I know of you basically before the book to tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, uh, what did you think about the the movie when it came out, and what do you think of it now?
0: I remember going to see the movie at the opening, and I don't remember if I left or if I wanted to leave, but um, I hated it. I really, I just felt like it was, it did not represent, first of all, me. I hated my performance. Um, The band was, you know, we weren't um, what we had been. We were actually in our own personal decline. We were, we broke up. I think by the time that the movie came out, we had already broken up or we were in the process of breaking up during the time that it was filmed. Uh, So it was really painful. It was like watching our you know it's like watching somebody break up it's like watching an an ugly part of your life immortalized so i was i was sad about that and then also i know that um people from the early um la scene were not were not really represented in that movie and i think there was there was a hope that that it that they would be um, you know, the germs were in it, which is good, but I think there were a lot of bands from the early scene that were very creative and that should have been in it. But having said that, I, re- I realized that that wasn't the director's, you know, she wasn't making a documentary about the early L.A. punk scene. She had her own story that she wanted to tell. And so those bands may not have fit into the story that she wanted to tell. And maybe that was, you know, it was called the decline. It wasn't called like the golden age of creativity, which is, you <laughs> know, what I, what I saw the early punk scene as. So, um, so it was disappointing to me. Um, I remember I was talking to Robert Lopez, who was, does Alvez, and was also in Catholic discipline and in the zeros. And I, I, I was talking to him recently and we were both saying, um, that we felt like when we saw that movie, like both of our bands, Catholic discipline and the bags just seemed to not fit in with the rest of the bands. Like we seemed like we're the weirdos in there. We're like the ones that are like a little bit quirkier and, um, you know, not, not as hard. We're not as hardcore. We're not like, I mean, I don't know if we're not as hardcore. We're not as, um, we're just different, you know, I don't I don't even know how to put my finger on it, I can't put my finger on it, we're just different, and um, for a long time, I thought that was a really bad thing, you know, I thought like, oh, people are gonna hate me, I look, you know, I don't fit in with the rest of the film, and, and I think people do, I, I still, you know, I've read online, like, oh, that band sucks, or whatever, and I don't, you know, I don't care, but um, now, after talking to Robert, I realize that that's really cool that even when we're playing with all these other bands that all have, you know, they're all doing punk. They're all, they all have a lot of energy that we were the quirky weirdos that were kind of maybe not fitting in. Mm -hmm. Like I think at at one point it was like, it, it felt uncomfortable to be that, but now I think it's cool. And also I think the decline really, helped me I don't think I would have been able to even you know attract a publisher if the decline hadn't kept my name alive so I think overall it was a good thing it exposed a lot of people got a lot of people interested in punk Mm -hmm. and you know as with Lady Sings the Blues I went back and it got me interested enough to go back and find Billie Holiday and find Bessie Smith so hopefully that that movie I think it did, you know, I'm not saying hopefully, but I think that the decline of Western civilization introduced a lot of people who didn't have, you know, enough people to create a scene in their hometown. It introduced a lot of people to to punk and became a sort of starting point where they could go back and do the research and find the bands that they
1: liked. Mm -hmm. I think you're right about that. I think, you know, with Black Flag and the Circle Jerks and Fear, you can see you know especially if you have a little knowledge of what occurs, you can see the movement going into hardcore, whereas uh, you and Catholic discipline especially are, are uh, your remnants of a, of a year or two earlier I think
0: yeah mm-hmm.
1: and, and the germs are somewhere in between there you can you, know, you can see yeah. where you know back Flag might have been enamored of of the germs performance anyway there the anger um let's uh Let's go back a little more personal then, as, as we start to wrap this up. Did your what did your parents think? Did they know you were a punk?
0: My parents knew was I was a punk. Yeah, I mean they, you know they, they'd seen my. I don't think they really knew what it meant to be a punk. They knew that I dressed weird, and they knew that I was living with you know, that I was living in Hollywood with all these uh, other punks. But I don't really think they knew what it meant. Uh, but they they were always really supportive of me though. My parents were. You know, whatever you want to do, we'll, we're, we're with you. So I I feel like that's something that has been with me my whole life. I think having that unconditional love, knowing that my parents gave me unconditional love, just, mm-hmm. it's been, it's been huge. And I still, I still feel like, um, like I'm really strong. <laughs> and I think it came from that. Um, but my, I remember my parents going to a show at the, at Madame Wong's and it got a little crazy. People were, you know, our shows were, were chaotic. So people would, you know, maybe throw furniture around or, <laughs> uh, my father was trying to see and he couldn't see. So he got up on the table, got up on a chair or on the table and like was trying to, uh, to, to see over the crowd. And my mother was shocked to see my dad doing that. And uh, she told me afterwards, your dad, your dad loved it. He was, you know, dancing and watching you. And I talked to my father afterwards and he's like, I don't know what you were singing about. I don't understand it. I don't know if you, he said, but I love how, you, I love the way you were doing it. So, um, so I just had, you know, lots of, positive feedback from my parents and lots Mm -hmm. of support. So, Mm
1: -hmm. And then in in the last 30 years, you've been involved in many other music projects. Uh, Can you want to tell us uh, some of the salient ones for you? Some of those that stand out?
0: Um, Well, right after, right after I did um, the bags, I was in Catholic discipline. Then I did Cambridge apostles. I, went into um God I'm gonna I know I'm gonna draw a blank because there are so many bands that Castration
1: in. Squad Castration in there.
0: Squad um uh, help me out here. I don't you know I have you, a You list. mentioned
1: uh Cholita.
0: Oh Cholita I was in Afro Sisters with Vaginal Cream Davis. Cholita I did a band called the Fire Engines. I did um, a band called the Swing Set. Um, I was in Alvez, I was in Alvette for a while, and uh, I was in a band called Stay at Home Bomb. <laughs> and I don't know, I can't think of all of them right now, but I mm-hmm. was in a lot of projects. I, I, You know, it, it's funny because I think that sometimes during like my 20s and 30s, I thought at some point I'm going to give up music and go to college because... I'm not going to be a rock star. And I'm not, you know, I I sort of feel like I'm like, I have to give it up and grow up. Mm -hmm. And I never, I can never give it up. It's like, and that's, that's another, you know, one of my things that I tell people, especially young people, it's like, don't even bother thinking that you're going to give up your, whatever your art or, or your creative thing is, you know, if it's music. It just, it's always there for you. And, um, even you know I was working full time jobs going to school full time and I still had to do my music on the side so
1: and you did you got your bachelor's degree I got you my bachelor's degree at kindergarten
0: mm-hmm I taught kindergarten i thought i taught every um I taught elementary school like di- all different grades uh-huh.
1: um
0: but kindergarten is the 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 first my first teaching experience and mm-hmm. uh, Still, it's still special to me.
1: <laughs> so so what are you up to today? I mean, I, I noticed on your Facebook page that just last weekend or so you were you were performing somewhere out in L.A., right?
0: Yeah. Um, I went to San Francisco and, oh, San- and then I went down to L.A. And um, I'm reading. I'm reading my book. And what I'm trying to do is as I read an excerpt from a certain part of my life, I try to do a song that corresponds with that. So that people can kind of, you know, put themselves in the mood of what I was listening to and how and and what I was going through at the time. Um and it's fun for me because I get to like, you know, I get to do songs that I liked at different times in my life. Which mm-hmm. is cool.
1: Is that what you're up to mostly then, writing these days? What are you are you what projects are you involved in right now?
0: Right now I'm pretty much um just, I'm involved in being a mom. I'm still like I'm stay-at-home mom this year. I I taught last year, but I decided to take this year off because I knew I wanted to be able to, you know, take time off and and uh, and tour with the book, and I didn't want to have to leave my kids with with subs all the time, so I decided to take that the time off and um, and I'm also I I have a daughter at home still. There's my other. Two daughters are in college now, but I have one daughter at home and, uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm here for her, um, mm-hmm. doing that. And also when I, when I have to go out of town, I need, I need to be near my husband so he can keep an eye on our daughter. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that, that consumes most of my time It's just doing these book tours and, mm-hmm. and I'm booking them myself because my publisher, it's a small publisher and it's a great publisher, but they don't really. They don't really do tour support so it's all mm. up to me to call venues and figure out how i'm going to get there figure out where i'm going to stay and uh how many books i have to order and it's actually it's it's work it's time consuming and it's and it's work that i wouldn't trade for anything i love it
1: but. and and you learned how to do that many years ago being a punk rocker right, right. It yourself yeah right. perfect well thank you alice for being on our show i mean it's a i found it to be a fascinating book and i think. Anybody who wants especially uh, a look at L.A. punk rock and punk rock generally, I think I think it's a, a superb uh, example of, of what was going on. Thank you. So uh, thank you very much for being on our show.
0: Thank you for having me. It was great.
1: You've been listening to a conversation with Alice Bagg about her book, Violence Girl, East L.A. Rage to Hollywood Stage, a Chicana Punk Story, published by Feral House in 2011. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.